Please take a copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We have Bibles provided for you in the back of the chairs in those little pockets. And if you're using one of those, you'll find Romans chapter 9 on page 945. 945. If you do not have or own a copy of the Bible and would like to own one, you may take the one that's in the back of the chair in front of you as a gift from Grace Baptist Church. It'd be our joy for you to have that. Today, in our ongoing study through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we come to a new division in Romans. We are going to start Romans 9 through 11. And these chapters constitute the final doctrinal section of the letter. So after chapter 11, we begin in chapter 12, where Paul starts making specific applications of all the doctrinal things that he has been teaching us in the prior chapters. In our next study, I intend to introduce chapter 9 more formally. I want to show how it fits together with 10 and 11 and with the things that go before it. But today, what I want simply to do is to begin the study by looking at the preface to this chapter, specifically verses 1 through 5, Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a copy of the scripture open, let me encourage you to do so, because all we're going to do is just walk through these verses and try to understand what it is that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write. Now, Romans 9 is considered to be the most significant chapter in all the Bible for what is perhaps the most controversial doctrine that you'll find in all of Scripture. Ask anybody who's been a Christian for very long and who is familiar with the New Testament what comes to their mind when they hear Romans 9, and you'll get answers like this. Well, predestination, or unconditional election, or the sovereignty of God. And all that makes perfect sense, and in many ways all those things are correct. Because in this chapter, we find all of those subjects taught very forthrightly and in very stark terms. In fact, if you have tried to study the doctrine of predestination in Scripture at all, you have undoubtedly spent time trying to see what Paul has said in this chapter. This high and holy doctrine can be confounding to our little pea brains because it stretches us to consider things like before creation and the realities of God's absolute sovereignty, and yet as his image bearers, our absolute responsibility. I want to just point out a few verses before we look at the preface that underscore this reality that it is full of instruction about these high doctrines. For example, when Paul brings up Isaac and Rebekah's twins in verses 11 through 13 of this chapter, listen to what he says about them. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is God's word. Or look at verse 15. Here Paul quotes what God said to Moses when Moses was dealing with Pharaoh. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You can see from just these few verses selected from Romans chapter 9, why it is so important to come to terms with God's sovereignty in election and predestination as it is taught in this chapter. We've already confronted this truth in our previous studies through Romans to this point. If you just look back at the last verses of chapter 8, you'll see how the Apostle Paul speaks of those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. But in chapter 9, Paul underscores that teaching of God's sovereignty in very plain language. In fact, it is so plain that it offends a lot of people. And it causes some people to either just kind of skate over it or try to reinterpret Paul's words in such a way that the plain meaning of what he says is altogether different from their conclusions. Well, God willing, we will walk carefully through this chapter in the weeks ahead. And we will do our best to understand exactly what it is that the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul to write about predestination. And as we do so, we'll do it without fear. We'll do it without embarrassment, without any concern about what it is that God has actually revealed. Because we are pre-committed in this church to believing everything that the Word of God teaches and to going everywhere that the Word of God leads, regardless of cost or regardless of consequences. So to prepare us for this study, I want to focus this morning on the preface, the first five verses of Romans 9, so that we can see what Paul says foundationally as a preface to this stark teaching of unconditional election and predestination. If we're going to believe Paul's doctrine of predestination, which I trust we will, then we must also embrace his compassion for people who are unconverted, which he reveals in these first five verses. So take your copy of God's Word, follow along silently as I read these verses aloud. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, And the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Unwavering belief in God's predestination compels an unbounded compassion for people's conversion. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, the way the Apostle Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, then we will be compelled to love people the way that the Apostle Paul loved people. 
We will not look at what Paul says about predestination today other than simply noting, as I've already done, that in this chapter we find it taught in very stark terms. My goal this morning is to take that as a backdrop in order to recognize Paul's deep compassion, his burden for the salvation of his fellow Jews. And as we look at it, my prayer is that the Lord will use this to convict us, to encourage us, to instruct us, to motivate us to long for the salvation of our loved ones that are outside of Christ. These five verses break down into two sections. The first is verses 1 through 3, where we see Paul's anguish for his people. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see the people for whom Paul is anguished. So let's look at these verses under those two headings. First, in verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul's anguish for his people. It's an interesting word that he chooses there to describe what's going on inside of him. Anguish, it's pain. It it speaks of a severe emotional type of anxiety and distress. And it's genuine. He wants to make sure we understand that it's genuine. Paul wants to dispel all doubt, so he says it positively and negatively. I'm speaking the truth, which we would not expect anything less from him. I am not lying, which we would never want to ascribe to him. But he says it positively and negatively to underscore the significance of what he's about to write. And he also invokes the name of the Son of God as well as the Spirit of God. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, I'm not exaggerating. I'm about to say something that you may hesitate to believe but I'm trying to prepare you to believe it because it's absolutely true. He says, my own conscience bears witness to this in the Holy Spirit. Paul knows what he's about to say about his deep burden for the Israelites is going to be questioned by people. It's going to be hard for people, especially for Jewish people, to believe. I mean, after all, Paul was called to be an apostle, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And since his conversion to Christ, he had experienced some very severe conflict with his fellow Jews. Just read about his experiences in the book of Acts, and you'll see that in every city where he went, the Jewish people became angry at him. Or read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, when he says that five times he received 39 lashes on his back from his kinsmen, the Jews. And he goes on to say that he was in constant danger from his fellow Jews. You know, Paul didn't mince words when he was speaking to and about his fellow Jews. He, for example, in the letter to the Galatians, warned that those congregations about Jewish people who had bought into a version of Christianity that caused them later to be known as Judaizers, it said, yes, you need faith, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to keep all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, including circumcision. And Paul has harsh words to say for those Jews. Just read Galatians 5.12, when he says, if you're going to circumcise, just go ahead and castrate yourselves. That's what he wishes that they would do. Why was he so upset? Because these Judaizers were corrupting the simple way of salvation 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Earlier in this letter to the church at Rome, Paul had indicted all Jews as well as all Gentiles as being lawbreakers, unrighteous, under the wrath of God, and in need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. In chapter 2, verse 24, he says that because of immoral Jews, the name of God is being blasphemed. And he's going to go on in chapter 11, as we will see, and make this statement in chapter 11, verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. He's telling these contemporary Jews that they have missed what God provided. Why? Because they were hardened. They weren't elect. That would have been offensive. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? I mean, would you imagine that a guy who would say these things, do these things, really cared at all about Jewish people? Well, Paul feels the weight of that doubt. That's why he writes the way he does here in this preface. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, believing sound doctrine Even doctrines that can come across as harsh, narrow-minded in our day. Doctrines like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that there's no other way to be saved apart from trusting Christ. Doctrines like unconditional election, that God is the one who chooses people to be saved. Doctrines like the unending wrath of God in a place that the Scripture calls hell. Believing these doctrines does not mean that you cannot have genuine compassion toward those who are unconverted. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. A proper commitment to truth compels genuine compassion for people. Paul goes on in verses 2 and 3 to describe some of the anguish that he is experiencing He describes it as being fierce and consuming. It's something that he lives with. Look at verse 2. He he says it's deep. He he describes it as never-ending. He says, with great sorrow, this sorrow, this oppressive psychological pain and and distress. It's it's mega sorrow, mega distress. And then he says it's never-ending unceasing, unceasing, constant. It's always there. Do you, you see what Paul's doing? He's describing this, this reality that goes on inside of himself that is similar to, to chronic pain. Some of you know what chronic pain is like. You go to bed with it. You wake up with it. It's just always there. And it might appear in the background at times but you never can truly forget about it and at times it flares up and it's debilitating Paul says that's what's happening to me inside when I think about my fellow kinsmen who don't know the Messiah who have missed Jesus Christ his sorrow is so heavy he thought his heart would break in verse 3 he says it makes him willing to sacrifice Look at these words. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This verse almost takes our breath away. 
Could Paul really mean this? Yeah, he meant every word of it. It's even more amazing to consider Paul writing this in light of what he's just written at the close of chapter 8. Where he says that nothing, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, Paul who writes verse 3 is the Paul who has spent a long time underscoring the point that it is impossible for any Christian ever to be accursed of God. What is it then that he's envisioning here? What is he driving at? Well, this word accursed is a word that we sometimes use in English. It's the word anathema. Anathema. It means quite simply to be delivered over to divine wrath. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, uses this word when he refers to the false teachers that are coming in and disrupting those churches. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven come to you and preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed by God eternally. He repeats it in verse 9. As I've said before, so now I say again, that if anyone comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, damned to hell. And he employs the same word here now to express the burden that he feels for his countrymen. Paul says, I'm willing to be anathema, to be cut off from Christ in order to underscore his point. It's just a restatement of what he means to be separated from the only hope of salvation for all eternity. What is he envisioning? I mean, what's going on emotionally with Paul? He says, I'm willing, were it possible, to be cast away from God forever for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He wants his fellow Jews to be saved. He wants them to be converted. This is confirmed by what he's going to write in verse 1 of chapter 10 when he finishes with what we have as Chapter 9, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. When we read these words, it reminds us of things that we've heard in the Old Testament, like in Exodus 32, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai the first time, and Aaron and the Israelites have built that golden calf. And he's so angry, he takes the tablets of stone that God had written the Ten Commandments on, and he shatters them. And God says, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them off. I'll make a new nation out of you, Moses. And Moses pleads for their forgiveness. And and in that prayer, he says, if you will not forgive them, then blot me out of your book that you have written. There's a love. There's a passion. There's a desire for the welfare of people that is expressed in these two Scriptural leaders that we have set before us. Moses in the Old Testament. Paul in the New Testament. But more to the point, those two men are simply reflecting what we see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
who out of love didn't simply verbalize a willingness, but was in fact accursed and cut off for the sake of his people. This is precisely what Jesus chose to do when he gave up his life on the cross. What Paul is describing here going on inside of himself is Christ-like, sacrificial love for people. A love that wants to see people know God. A love that is so burdened about it that he is tormented emotionally until they do. And when Paul writes this, he's he's not writing superficially. He writes this with stripes on his back. He has marks in his body demonstrating his own love for God and love for people. You see, Paul was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be arrested, ridiculed, starved, imprisoned. He was willing to have a price put on his head. He was willing to be slandered and considered a betrayer by those closest to him, all for the sake of love. You know, sometimes I think that our love tends to be more theoretical than real. We tend to be quicker to love, as John puts it, in word, in speech, rather than in deed and in truth. I was reminded of a story of two farmers who were dear friends, lifelong friends. They're sitting out on the porch one day and Joe wants to express his deep love for, for his friend Fred. And so he says, you know, Fred, we're good friends. We've known each other a long time and I love you. I really do love you. In fact, I love you so much. If I had a thousand head of cattle, I'd give you 500. Fred said, You'd really do that? He said, yes, I would. He said, if you had 100 head of cattle, would you give me 50? He said, I sure would. Fred said, well, if you had 10 head of cattle, would you give me five? He said, you know I would. Fred said, well, if you had two cows, would you give me one? Joe jumped up and said, now, Fred, you know I got two cows. (laughs) It's easy to love in theory, isn't it? It's easy to imagine how much we love or would love or what we would do. Brothers and sisters, this is an opportunity for us to evaluate our lives and ask God to help us to see how much of our professed love for people is merely theoretical. It's easy to fantasize what we would do for the sake of love. We might even read Paul's words here and say, well, you know what? I mean, yeah, yeah. If I could trade my eternal destiny for the eternal destiny of my loved ones outside of Christ, I would do that. Well, let me ask the question. What marks do you bear on your body of having attempted to bring your loved ones to Christ? I mean, what are we doing? For the sake of love. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Those that we know and love. That are strangers to Jesus. Have I given them a Bible? Have I even put a little gospel tract in their hand? Do I pray for them regularly? 
Have I told them I'm concerned about their soul? That I'm concerned about their eternal destiny? Have I spoken to them about Jesus at all? Have I invited them into my home? Just so they can hear me pray and read Scripture with them? Have I even invited them to church? It's easy to love in theory, isn't it? When we talk about compassion for those outside of Christ, we need to deal with God and acknowledge that so often we're not even willing to inconvenience ourselves for the eternal welfare of people around us, much less show the kind of compassion that we see here in the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, God loves this kind of compassion. God loves this kind of impertinence that says, I can't be denied. This must happen. God, please hear this prayer. He teaches us this in Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. You remember Luke 18, I think it is, where this widow goes to a judge seeking justice. The Bible says he doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear people. And so he writes her off. He dismisses her and she's, she will not be dismissed. And she keeps coming and he finally says, you know, I don't care about people. I don't care about God. But you're wearing me out. I'm going to give you justice. And Jesus uses that as an example of how we are to pray. To seek that which we desperately long for. And we see something of this in the relationship between the early church father, Augustine, and his mother, Monica. Monica is a storied woman in history. She loved her son, Augustine, who ultimately, when he came to Christ, became an incredible, incredible church leader. We still benefit from his teachings and his writings today. But he had fallen into a heresy called Manichaeism. And he was profligate. I mean, he, he was wicked. He was immoral in every way. And, and Monica kept praying for his salvation. And, and he left North Africa and went through Europe. And she followed him. Wherever he would go, she would show up. She'd find him. Even when he was trying not to be found by her. And she would plead with him to come to Christ. To believe the gospel. And she would talk to pastors. And ask pastors to witness to her son. To, to help her son. And in one place, she cornered a bishop and she pled with him to go and to speak to Augustine. And he knew Augustine and he said, he won't listen to me. He has no interest in the things I would tell him. Keep praying for him. And she said, I am praying for him. And she continued to plead with this bishop until finally, with a little sense of being perturbed at her importunity, he said to Monica, go your way as you live. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. And Augustine writes in his book, The Confessions, God opened his eyes. He came to Christ. His mother was thrilled. And she said, I don't have any reason to stay alive. Said, so my life's burden has been lifted. And within a year, she died. Brothers and sisters, there's a great lesson for us here. Do you find that your belief in the sovereignty of God sometimes dulls your concern for lost people? If you do, 
I hope you, no, I, I hope we will all be appropriately rebuked, humbled by Paul's admission here. If hard truths are not making soft hearts, then you can be sure that those truths are not yet being understood and believed appropriately. If we can take comfort in knowing the gospel while remaining comfortable and not making it known, we do not possess what Paul possessed. We must pray to the Lord. Ask Him to show us what He showed Paul. Ask Him to help us to feel what Paul felt. To give us what He gave Paul. To make us what He made Paul. Are you concerned about your unconverted friends and family members? Mom, Dad, you have children that are not trusting Christ. Maybe have walked away from the things you tried to teach them about Christ. I know you're concerned about them. Do you let yourself feel the burden of concern that we see here in the Apostle Paul? What about those of you who are married who have a spouse that's unconverted? I know. I've seen the tears of some of you. I've heard the prayers. prayed with you. Don't let yourself cease from this type of anguish for the eternal destiny of those that you love. What about your friends? What about your classmates? What about your parents? Your neighbors? Brothers and sisters, we live around people that are strangers to God. They have souls that will spend eternity somewhere. And if we don't love them, if we don't seek to point them to Christ, who will? May God help us. May God grant to us this type of burden. May the Lord motivate us to pray, to speak, to plead, to do whatever we can do for the sake of the glory of our God who deserves to have every knee bow to Jesus Christ and for the love and the eternal welfare of those whom we know and love. Oh God, Break our hearts for lost people the way you broke Paul's heart. Along with Paul's anguish in this passage, anguish for his people, he goes on in verses 4, 5, and 6, or 4 and 5, to show us the people for whom he was in anguish. These were very privileged and religious people. He'd already hinted at this earlier in the letter in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, he said. God gave them His revealed will, His Word. Here, in this passage, these verses, he elaborates those blessings. He calls them Israelites. Israel, meaning the Prince of God. This is the name given to Jacob by God in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. He says, to them belong the adoption. In Exodus 4.22, God calls the nation of Israel my firstborn son, signifying that they will be a type of the incarnate son of God who will come in fulfillment of that type. 
He says, to them belong the glory. This is a reference to the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence in the Old Testament, seen most beautifully in the way He led the Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness with that pillar of cloud by day, that pillar of fire by night that said, this is my presence, these are my people. To them, He says, belong the covenants, referring to the covenants that God gave made with Abraham and with Moses and David to have a people for himself and to be their God, to bring forth blessing to the world throughout that old covenant people. To them was the giving of the law, the revelation of righteousness, summarized in the Ten Commandments, those words that God thundered from Mount Sinai and then etched in tablets of stone with His own finger. To them is the worship, the prescription of sacrifices and ceremonies associated with Old Testament temple worship, all of which pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would come. To them belong the promises inherent in those covenants, renewed and emphasized by the prophets. To them are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom those promises of salvation were handed down from generation to generation. And then he says, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ the greatest blessing and privilege of all. Imagine it. To be the very people whom God chose to use to bring forth the Savior of the world, their own Messiah, who in the most tragic irony of human history, they rejected. Paul recognized and was deeply, deeply appreciative of all the blessings that belonged to the people of Israel. They were a nation set apart from other nations. They had blessings that other nations were denied. They had ready access to God through His revelation. They were very religious and a very privileged people. Brothers and sisters, you know what? The same thing can be said about us. We are very blessed. We are very privileged. I wonder sometimes if we take the blessings and the privileges God's given to us for granted. How many Bibles do you own? If you've got a smartphone, you could probably find 20 in three minutes at your fingertips. How many good Christian books are on your shelves at home? I mean, how many times have you heard the Word of God taught to you explained to you how many times have you had people pray for you how many christian hymns and songs have you heard how many christ preaching churches are within driving distance from your home god's been so good to us it's easy to take it for granted and to fail to step back and look at it and say yes indeed we are a privileged and blessed people I remember many years ago, the first time I went to China, I was with a group of pastors and our main mission was to meet with pastors of underground churches there in China. And we had the wonderful opportunity of doing just that and listening to them. Most of those meetings were in clandestine settings because of the persecution of the Chinese communist government. But we also met with leaders of the government-sanctioned, compromised, three-self-patriotic movement church as well. 
And there was one day we were on the steps of a seminary of one of these government-sanctioned churches. And we were talking, having toured the seminary, and, and a group of bedraggled six or seven men came walking up to us. And the one, the missionary who was there, who was the interpreter, discovered that they were Christians who had walked for several days from their village into the city in order to find Bibles. Well, we had packed in a bunch of Chinese Bibles. And so we started opening our backpacks and started handing them those Bibles. And the tears began to flow. And they began to rejoice and talk loudly and sort of jumping up and down. And, and we're looking at them and, and there was so much being said back and forth that the interpreter couldn't keep up. And, and finally, they just burst out singing in Mandarin. And so we listened to them and they stopped and we looked at each other and we sang the doxology back to them in English. And then they would sing in Mandarin and we'd sing in English. And this went on until one of the seminary officials came and told us we were making too much noise and kicked us off the property. <laughs> but the exuberance of having a Bible. You, you can see this. This still goes on today. Our friend Brooks Booser, who was here with us earlier this year, he was involved in taking the gospel to the Yimbi Yimbi tribe in Papua New Guinea. And you can actually find this on YouTube. We, I think we sent it out through the church e-newsletter not long ago. And it just is a documentary of the story of him going to these people that have never heard the name of Jesus, living among them, evangelizing them, getting their language in a written form, and then writing, translating the Bible for them and giving it to them. You ought to watch it. You ought to watch it. These people who have freshly come to Christ now have the written God in their own language that they can hand, handle and read. What a blessing that we have such ready access to God's Word. Thank God for those blessings, for those privileges. Paul thanked God for the blessings and privileges of his fellow kinsmen. But, but, with all of their blessings, all of their privileges, they were utterly lost without Christ. When Paul says that he was willing to be accursed and cut off in verse 3, he is signaling the condition of his kinsmen. He was willing to trade places with them. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he wants them to be saved. Why? Because they are lost. Brothers and sisters, just as Old Testament Israel had incredible spiritual blessings and opportunities, so do we. Young people, children, some of you adults in this church, you have grown up, you have had access to the Word of God. You've had people pray for you. You've heard sermons. You've sung hymns that tell you the truth about God. And you've associated with the people of God. And you've been around the only message that saves sinners and makes them right with God. And yet, in the very presence of all of these blessings and opportunities, you've never simply humbled yourself, confessed your sin, and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and been saved. Privileged, but lost. And there's no reason for you to stay lost. There's no reason for you to remain outside of 
the incredible love that comes from God to sinners in Jesus Christ. He has you here, now. And this Gospel, this salvation is set before you. And He calls you in behalf of Jesus Christ. I plead with you to turn from your sin. Trust Jesus. Call Him Lord today and follow Him. You trust Jesus Christ, He will accept you. These blessings, these privileges that perhaps you've taken for granted that you haven't even stopped to think about, these will suddenly become to you precious opportunities, precious gifts of God that you will relish because you now know the God who has given them. It's not enough to know true things. It's not enough to be in proximity with the people of God. You need to be born again to a living hope. You need to turn from your sin and entrust your soul to the Savior. Confess your pride. Confess your disobedience to God. And acknowledge that Jesus really is Lord. He will save you. God delights in saving sinners. Christians, you who know and love people outside of Christ, let the truth of this passage weigh heavily upon you. Ask the Lord to remind us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners just like us, just like those we know and love. And plead with God to move us, to speak to those that we know and love who are in need of His salvation. Well, all of these things in this preface were written by the man who penned the strongest lessons we have in the Bible on God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. And as we will see, as we work through the rest of Romans 9, it is God and God alone who in His sovereign grace grants salvation. And He does so according to an eternal plan of salvation, according to predestinating purposes, according to unconditional election of particular people to be saved. And the lesson for us, church, is that an unwavering belief in the predestinating purposes of God ought to compel us to have compassion that is unbounded for the conversion of people. Oh, may God grant us what he granted Paul. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We long, Lord, we long to know what Paul knew. We long for your spirit to work in us what you worked in him. We, we don't want to be a church that simply acknowledges true things from your word. We want to be a church that is so passionate about your glory and the salvation of people that is so compassionate toward those who have souls that will never die that we go and make Christ known. I pray for those here today who've never bowed the knee to Jesus. Lord, if you would just open their eyes, give them a glimpse of your son. They could not help but trust him. Would you do that for the sake of of your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.